Well, a word again to the epistle of James. Would you find James chapter 1 and verse 21? So far in our study of this letter, a letter written to the scattered saints of the first century, we've learned that we owe our birth into the kingdom of God, that is our salvation, we owe it to the sovereign grace of God and the power of the word. And having been brought to new life in Christ by the will of the Father and by the word of truth, as James says in verse 18, we are then to live out the balance of our Christian lives under the command of the very word that brought us to life. This is the point James has been stressing in this first chapter. The word of the Lord that brought us to life, that same word is to be forever the controlling and dominant factor in our lives. It is to be the most important thing in our lives. Our lives as Christians have originated by the word, and now every person is to be quick to hear it. They are to be slow to speak and slow to anger and to let the word lead them and empower them to bring about the righteousness of God. And we've also discovered that James is very concerned about the practical details of our lives. He is concerned that our salvation be lived out in fullness down to the nitty-gritty details of everyday existence. That God's righteousness that he mentions in verse 20, that that righteousness might be fully accomplished. And so the Christian life, as James sees it, is a life that is always being exposed to the word. The life-giving, life-transforming word of the Lord that never returns empty. James has called us to hear, to be quick to hear. And we come to a very practical question, again, that James already anticipates. What does it mean to hear the Word of God? This Word that has saved us, this Word that is now to control us. What does it mean to listen and to hear the Word of the Lord? Well, that's the subject to which James now turns in verse 21. So let's read verse 21 and verse 22 and see what the answer is. Therefore... Putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The word of the Lord, blessed be his holy name. Well, let's get ready to hear the word. What do you say? What does James say about hearing the word? And you'll notice that the very first thing he says is, therefore. Right there in verse 21, therefore. It's as if James is coming to a conclusion about hearing the word. He's about to explain what hearing the word is really about. And you'll notice what he does. What he is about to do is he is going to teach us that in light of the new birth that we have been freely granted in our Father and by our Father, there is now something for us to do. The word therefore signals that there is something for us to do, that hearing and doing, at least in the mind of James, are linked. Another way to put that is this way, because we belong to Jesus, because the Father, the will of the Father has brought us to life, because he, he sent his word to us, and the word raised us from the dead, literally, now, now we have work to do. 
the work begins. And so there's this link, a necessary link, between hearing and obeying. And that link is doing. And doing is a key theme for James. Now we need to stop because here there is an apparent problem with James. There's no secret to it that through the years that this epistle has been read and studied, some see what they might call a discrepancy or a difference between how James seems to speak of salvation and how, let's say, the Apostle Paul uh, speaks of salvation. Now, most of you are very familiar with this book of the Bible, this very practical epistle. And you know that in chapter 2, James will flatly say this. He will say, that we are not justified by faith alone. And if you don't believe me, you can look at chapter 2, verse 24 for yourself. Uh, We're going to get there eventually. James will say, I'm here to tell you that you are not justified by faith alone. And we read that and, and we have whiplash because it seems that James is saying something that is in contradiction to what the Bible clearly says about salvation in so many other places. Now, we're going to deal with that uh, very directly and very, very exhaustively when we get to chapter 2. But for now, I want you to see that any apparent discrepancy or difference is just that. It is only apparent. There is no real contradiction here. There is no real uh, discrepancy, and the proof is in front of you. The proof is in the verses that we've been studying. Notice in verse 18 again. How did you come into the kingdom? Did you work yourself into salvation? Well, according to James in chapter 1, verse 18, it was the will of the Father. And it was the will of the Father accompanied by the effectual word of the Father. And so you owe your salvation not to your works, but to His sovereign work. It was His word, His power, His choice, His grace, all for His glory. Salvation belongs to the Lord. James would amen that, that great line from Jonah. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and indeed it does. And so James is not not saying something in, in distinction from or in contrast with or in opposition to what the Bible says about the freeness of our salvation. He is declaring it right here. You came to faith in Christ because that was the will of the Father. And he sent his word to you and he raised you from the dead. And your works had nothing to do with earning his salvation. And we come to chapter 1 verse 21 and James continues showing us the gracious nature of salvation. He speaks of the Word of God in a most unusual way. He describes the Word of God as the implanted Word. The implanted Word. And not only is the Word implanted, but it is the implanted Word which is able. It is able. That is, the implanted Word that God planted in your dead soul That implanted word is powerful. In fact, the word able is a word that reminds us of power. It is powerful. It is effectual. The word is all-powerful. The gospel is divinely powerful. And this is the word that brought you to life in Christ. There's nothing more powerful than the word of the Lord. There is no power in the universe 
equal to or even in the same ballpark with the power of the Word of God. So James, James is saying that the Lord, because He loved you in eternity, the Lord, because He chose you in eternity, the Lord, because He wanted to save you in eternity, implanted His Word in you and that brought you to life. And by the power of the gospel, you were saved. The power of God moved you and empowered you to repent and to believe. And so you owe everything uh, to the Lord. And so that implanted word transforms our lives. It is able to save. It is able to save in the past, justification. It is able to save in the present, sanctification. And it is able to save in the future, glorification. All of it brought about by the word which is able. Now having said that, having made the case, and I think made a very impressive case, that salvation belongs to the Lord, there are yet things for us to do. There are things for us to do. Our doing comes after our saving. The doing does not precede the saving, it follows the saving. In other words, because we are the new people of God, because we've been brought to life by God, now, now we have some very definite obligations. We have some responsibilities. We have work to do. So what do we have to do now that Jesus has saved us so freely, now that the Father has reached down in love and plucked us from the fires of hell? What is there for us to do? Well, here's where James gets very practical. What must we do now that we belong to Jesus? And you can see that first off, there are some things we need to get rid of. We need to take out the trash. There are some things we must get rid of. Notice verse 21. Therefore, in light of all that God has done for us, therefore, James says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Now, when James writes this, he is not talking to the world. He isn't talking to your lost neighbor or your lost cousin. He is talking to you and me. This is a letter to the church, and he's telling the church, Therefore, since you belong to Christ, then put away all filthiness and all rampant wickedness. Now, we, we get some help in understanding this if we compare translations and we have probably a variety of translations represented in our congregation this morning. If you have the NIV, it reads this way, Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's still so prevalent. And some of you might have the New King James. And it says, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness. And then the New American Standard reads this way, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains, all that remains of wickedness. So what James is saying is this, since you belong to Jesus, the first obligation that we have and that you have is to engage in a thoroughgoing house cleaning of sorts. We have an active part to play. This evening, usually around dark 30, I do what I do every Sunday night. Now, in our neighborhood, the trash is picked up on Monday morning. 
And as a ritual, on Sunday evening, I gather all the trash in the house, and I throw it in that big green thing, and I roll that big green thing out to the end of the driveway, and I station it as told in the brochure, because if you don't get it exactly right, they won't pick it up. And you put it right there where they say, and lo and behold, on Monday morning, someone will come and take it away. But they're not going to come in my driveway. They're not going to come in my house and empty all the trash bins. I have something to do. I have a deliberate obligation. I have an explicit obligation. And in some ways, that is exactly what James is saying. There are some things in our lives that we have to get rid of, that we have to eliminate simply because we belong to Jesus. And I'm going to say that again. Because we're going to reflect on that all the way through the sermon, even at the Lord's Supper table. Because I belong to Jesus, there are some things I must get rid of out of my life. Now, now James is not saying that we're not fully forgiven. He is not saying that the Spirit of God doesn't cleanse us. But he is saying that there is an active part we play in becoming sanctified. There is something I must participate in. There's a process, a sacred duty, and I must get my hands involved in it. I have something to throw out and put away. And when James uses this phrase that, at least in the ESV, is translated as put away, he's talking about stripping something off. The, the image there is stripping off dirty clothing. Clothing that has become soiled that you can no longer wear. Maybe it's so soiled you no longer want it. And so you, you strip it away and you throw it down. And that is decisive and that is deliberate. And so as James is writing and as he speaks with fresh power, even this very moment, James is saying there are some things in our lives, even as Christians, that are not compatible with our new life in Christ. And they must go. Now, now, what exactly is he talking about? Well, frankly, there's a bit of frustration as I read this passage because James does not get specific. He speaks in larger categories. And he says, what has to go, since you belong to Jesus, since he saved you and he loves you and he's forgiven you, since all of that is true, you, you've got to get rid of all filthiness. And all rampant wickedness. And these things must be ruthlessly abandoned. That's the idea. They must be stripped off, cast aside, done away with. I mean, the language is very clear. What has to go is, is filthiness, verse 21. All filthiness. What in the world is that? Well, again... That's a term that has a very broad meaning. Generally speaking, it applies to behavior that is morally degenerate or dirty. Now, this is going to be a little bit indelicate, but this word translated filthiness, and, and James may have very well had this in mind. We don't know for sure, but it's just interesting that this word filthiness was the ancient word for earwax. And, and you can see, if James has that in mind, you can see the point. 
You know, if, if this wax is allowed to build up in your ears, you can't hear what you should hear. And James is talking about hearing the word. It's interesting that he uses that particular word to speak of what we must get rid of. What is it that keeps us from hearing the word? Well, that's filthiness in the eyes of God. Anything that defiles, anything that is impure in the sight of God. Uh, some translate it as moral shabbiness. Everything that taints, souls, or devalues our lives. Uh, this word also appears in the writings of Paul in Ephesians 5. Again, he doesn't really define the term, but he says, In the church there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting that is not fitting for those who've been saved and so there Paul uses the same word so whatever is morally dirty whatever prevents us from hearing the word it has to go no questions asked it, it, it has to go now indeed this is not the only place where the Christian where the believer is called to take out the trash, to throw some stuff aside. In fact, there are a number of times the same exhortation is given. You can think of Romans 13, 12. Paul says, therefore, let us lay aside, throw out the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Take out the trash. He says it again in Ephesians 4. Lay aside, put it away the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Put, put, a, put aside the old self. Take out the trash. And then the author of the Hebrew epistle, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Filthiness has to go if you're going to follow Jesus. It has to go. We cannot tolerate what is filthy and be loyal to Jesus. Can you think for a moment about what filth there is in your life today? What must go? What has to be cast off if the Lord is to be honored in your life if the Spirit is to fill you with fresh power and joy, and if you're to be useful in God's service. But then James says, not only does filthiness have to go, but rampant wickedness. Now again, these are, are, are synonymous. He's not saying something totally different, but here's another angle. Not only filthiness, but rampant wickedness. And again, he's talking to Christians. And so the rampant wickedness must go. Uh, the word rampant, that's the difficult word. It's hard to translate. Maybe the best idea is that, that of residue, surplus, the excess, what's left over, what's left over from your life apart from Christ. So even though we are the newborn people of God and, and we are possessed by the Spirit of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God, fully justified and adopted, there yet remains in us sin. Wickedness is still in there. And, and using the terminology of James, we might say the residue, the debris of our former life apart from Christ, our pre-conversion life, it's still there. It's still adhering to us. One commentator has called it the hangover 
from our pagan life. So sin remains there. We, we call that indwelling sin in the life of a believer. Uh, Calvin's term is very helpful. He says there are noxious weeds, noxious weeds in our hearts continually sprouting up that we must identify and eradicate. And maybe we could say take out the trash and kill the weeds. Kill the weeds. We are not yet perfected. We are being sanctified. You can see that going on here. No saint in the history of Christianity has ever been completely and totally sanctified on this side of heaven. And so we go to war. This is a summons to war against that which resists and opposes the will of God and is contrary to his holiness. Uh, We have to declare a holy war on filthiness and rampant wickedness, anything within us that falls short of the glory of God. Now, I take great comfort in this passage because in one verse, the Bible does away with any notion of Christian perfectionism. There are no perfect Christians. There are no sinless Christians. There are no Christians who finish their battle. We don't finish the battle till Jesus comes. There is no Christian in whom there are not noxious weeds and indwelling sin. And as we become holy, as the spirit of holiness does his work in making us holy, we have to take out the trash and we have to kill the weeds. We kill the weeds. As I read this passage and in many good ways agonized over this passage, I was continually reflecting on the words of Jesus. As a side note, when you read James, as we're going to be doing, you're going to hear Jesus speaking. It is incredible how how much James depends upon the teaching ministry of Jesus, how much James depends on the Sermon on the Mount and other episodes where Christ taught. And as James is telling us to take out the trash and kill the weeds... I think he has in mind something that's been popping into my heart all week. Matthew 18. Listen to what Jesus says about how we are to deal ruthlessly with our sins. In Matthew 18, verse 8, Jesus starts the paragraph this way. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away from you. It is better that you enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire of hell. And then Jesus said in verse 9, If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter into life, that is eternal life, with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. And this is what James is saying. Deal ruthlessly with your sin. So here is a serious obligation to put away anything and everything that is contrary to God's word. To trust the empowering spirit of God to help us, as one expositor says, pick up the hoe and begin chopping the weeds 
using the hoe of the Word of God, the hoe, the Spirit of God, against the fertility of the old nature. We're at war. We have work to do. Now, one question that I have as I read this, and and maybe you have it, and again, I think James anticipates our questions, is, okay, Mike, in practical terms, what does it mean to put these things away? You've been identifying these things in your life now. Even as the sermon has been going on, you've identified some things that have to go. Then what does it mean to put them out of your life? How do we take off that sold garment? How do we carry out the trash? How do we kill those weeds? How do we do that? And the answer is repentance. That's the active part we play, is repentance. Now, now to repent requires first a recognition. And that is a recognition that whatever God has forbidden is in fact sinful. Whatever God calls filthiness or wickedness, or evil is just that. That which is evil and that which is wicked and morally defiled, that has been defined by God, not by me or you or the world. So the first thing we're to do is to recognize that God determines what is good and what is evil. We know that something is wrong, we know that something is a sin, that it's evil, that it's morally corrupt, that it's wicked, because God has deemed it so. His word has said it is so. And our only authority is God's word. What this means is that despite how any given behavior might be approved of by us or the world, or even endorsed by, If God says it's wrong, it's wrong, and we must repent. You see, there are many, many things that are perfectly legal and acceptable, even honorable as far as society goes, that are totally contrary to the will of God. And therefore, if it's contrary to the will of God, be it noble and legal and moral according to men, it has no place in the life of a believer. And so what James is saying is we have to repent. We have to live truly converted lives. And this puts us at odds with the world. Jesus said to his disciples and to you, you are not of the world. I chose you out of the world, Jesus said. The apostle of love, the apostle John said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. This is what repentance is. It says, Lord, you are the governor, the king. You are the one who defines what is good and just and holy and that which is evil. And I recognize that what you say about a given behavior or thought or deed, if it is evil, then it is evil. And I turn away from that and I turn to Christ in full submission. Now that's how you put it off. That's how we strip off our old garments of sin. We hear the word. The word moves us. 
The word cultivates repentance and an awareness of sin. And we turn and we turn and we keep turning to God and turning away from evil. We renounce it. We disown it. We see it for what it is. We seek God's mercy. We beseech the Lord to strengthen us. We take whatever steps are necessary to throw it out of our lives. In a word, we die to sin and we live to God. This is what James is saying. Repent. Turn. As I've read this passage and had it weighing on my own soul, it's clear that James is calling us to live a life of what I would call constant watchfulness and spiritual vigilance. Sometimes the word destroys our view of Christianity. Have you noticed that? Years ago, uh, when we lived in central Florida, one of my favorite things to do was to go to this water park. And uh, what, what thrilled me was not the slide or the things that spin and make you throw up and all that. My favorite ride was the lazy river. The lazy river. And the kids were small, and we would get in one raft, all five of us, and get in the middle of that very gently flowing stream, and it would go forever. You didn't have to paddle You didn't have to steer. You just laid there and soaked up the sun, and the lazy river just took you wherever it wanted to go. And you ended up at the destination, and you got in line, and you did it again, the lazy river. And maybe maybe sometimes we think that the life of a Christian is a life on the lazy river. Where once you're a Christian, all your problems are solved and you just float until Jesus comes. But can't you see James giving us a wake-up call that the Christian life is not a ride on the lazy river? Uh, to, to keep with that analogy, we're not on a raft, we're, we're on a warship. We're on duty. We're on alert. We're on patrol. We're in the midst of our mission. Sometimes we're plowing through ice. Sometimes we're going through a narrow strait where there are enemies on both sides and we receive their artillery fire and we hold on to Jesus and to each other as the missiles fly by. But we are not on the lazy river. There's work to do. Now, even on that battleship, there are moments of incredible peace, and it's a peace that passes understanding. But we are always at war. Slowly but surely being transformed into the people of God, slowly and surely becoming holy, but every day fighting and resisting and repenting together. So so take out your trash and pick up your hoe chop some weeds when Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians or his series of letters to the Corinthians there were two major athletic contests 
held at regular intervals. One was the Olympics that you're well familiar with. But another games was named after the Isthmus of Greece called the Isthmian Games. And Paul actually refers to that as he says something like that which James is exhorting us to do today. Paul says, do you not know that those who run in the race, that is in the Isthmian Games, they all run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in those games exercises self-control in all things. They, that is the pagan runners, do it to get nothing but a perishable wreath. But we, runners for Christ, soldiers of the gospel, we do it for an imperishable wreath. Therefore, Paul says, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. This is what James is saying. Take out your trash. Run light. And run with purity. But then we notice as James brings at least this section to a conclusion, there is an attitude that must dominate if we're going to do the things that this text calls us to do, to put aside those deeds of darkness and cling to Christ. There's an attitude that we have to cultivate. Notice he says in verse 21, receive with meekness that word which has been implanted the New American Standard, I think, is, is pretty clear. In humility, that's the word, in humility receive the word implanted. On the negative side, there are some things to put away. There's trash to be taken out. There's, there are weeds to kill. But on the positive side, there's an attitude, there's a posture to embrace. And what is, what is that posture that should dominate the life of a believer? It is, it is this word meekness or, or humility. The very same word Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That word meekness is almost untranslatable. In fact, scholars have long labored to give it an English rendering, and it's very difficult to do. But it means something like this, a teachable spirit. It's been defined as describing the one who is humble enough to learn without resentment or anger. It is the one who is able to face the truth even when it hurts. Now, this is, this is the dominating attitude of the believer. The meek person is ready to renounce his stubbornness. He's ready to confess his sins. He is clear-eyed to the truth, and he embraces it. Meekness is required as we take out the trash and chop down the weeds. Humility. And then with humility, now we define exactly what hearing is in verse 22. Don't be hearers only, James says, but be a doer of the word. Now, do you see what he's done? He has defined hearing for us. 
in the biblical sense of the word, to hear the word of God is to be brought under its convicting power and to have our sins exposed. It is to confess those sins and repent of them daily and throw them out and renounce everything that displeases the Lord while embracing this beautiful virtue of humility, a teachable spirit. And then we are prepared to offer the final component of true hearing, which is obedience. Have you ever given your children an order and there was no response? Have you ever said, Johnny, clean up your room? And Johnny's sitting on the couch with his iPad. And you know Johnny can hear. And you say, Johnny, clean up your room. And the sound waves move from your mouth. They travel mysteriously through the air. And they enter his ears and, and you hope penetrate into his brain. But there's no response. And you could say, technically speaking, Johnny heard you. But his feet didn't move. And James is saying this, we can, hope, we can read the Bible until we're blue in the face. We, we can listen to every podcast on the internet. We can, we can be faithful uh, to the teaching and preaching of the Word of God and still not hear. Our feet have to move. Hearing is obeying. The Word that convicts us, the word that humbles us is the word that should move our feet in obedience. So James says, be doers of the word. Whatever the word says, let God's people do it. Whoever the word takes us, let God's people go. Whatever the Lord says is wrong, let God's people forsake it. Whatever the Lord says, whatever his word says is virtuous, let his people embrace it and put it into action. And we haven't heard until our feet are moving. So are you hearing? Have you renounced what is sinful? Is the Lord making you humble? And are you obeying? Those are things we have to do because we belong to Jesus because he has saved us. May the Lord help us hear in the full sense of the word so that we will live for his glory and his glory alone. Would you take a moment to prepare your heart to come to the table of the Lord?